When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Fantasy, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. This is your host, Gabrielle Matthew. Today, I'm talking with Su Lin Tan in Hong Kong about the first novel in her Chinese mythology-inspired duology called Daughter of the Moon Goddess. Here's my review. The immortal Xinyin lives a quiet life on the moon with her mother, the moon goddess, and a devoted servant. When an innocent Xinyin ignores her mother's warning, her actions raise the suspicion of the Empress of the Celestial Kingdom, who swoops in for an unannounced visit. Xinyin has never questioned her isolation, but now her mother reveals that her existence is a secret which would lead to punishment for them both if it were known. Xinyin is forced to flee her home before the Empress returns but her travels are interrupted by a storm. She ends up in the last place where she ever wanted to be, the court of the celestial kingdom itself. No one suspects her true identity. Xinyin must keep her secret safe, even as she becomes closer and closer to the empress's own son, Prince Li Wei, who is as compassionate as his mother is cruel. When her growing love for each other threatens the path each should take, Xinyin decides the best course of action is to become an archer in the emperor's army. But not all the danger will come from the monsters that she faces on the battlefield. So I'm going to invite Su Lin to do a short reading now. So I'm welcoming Su Lin Tan on to talk about her new book now. Hi, Gabrielle. I'm Su Lin. I'm so pleased to be here. Well, and thanks for joining us. We're going to kick things off with a reading. Sounds great. Um, should I start now? Or? Yeah, go ahead and start. So I was thinking um, I'm going to read from the first chapter of the book. Well, not, not the whole thing, but part of it. Um, uh, okay, so chapter one of Daughter of the Moon Goddess. Um, there are many legends about my mother. Some say she betrayed her husband, a great mortal warrior, 
stealing his elixir of immortality to become a goddess. Others depict her as an innocent victim who swallowed the elixir while trying to save it from thieves. Whichever story you believe, my mother Chang'e became immortal, as did I. I remember the stillness of my home. It was just myself, a loyal attendant named Pinger, and my mother residing on the moon. We lived in a palace built from shining white stone, with columns of mother of pearl and a sweeping roof of pure silver. Its vast rooms were filled with cinnamon wood furniture, their spicy fragrance wafting through the air. A forest of white osmanthus trees surrounded us with a single laurel in its midst, bearing luminous seeds with an ethereal shimmer. No wind, no bird, not even my hands could pluck them. They cleave to the branches as steadfastly as the stars to the sky. So I was thinking that I would stop here. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was Shingen on the moon, <laughs> but her journey yeah. only begins yeah. there. Uh while she flees, as I've written uh, when I've reviewed the novel, she has to disguise her identity because she falls down into the celestial kingdom off a cloud. It's the very last place she wants to be. Uh, there she meets many friends, and she has to keep her identity a secret. And it turns out some of her friends have secrets as well. But can you explain what drives Xing Yin to be so secretive and how this might affect her relationships with those she grows close to? Sure. Um, well, how the novel actually starts is that she um, she learns that her, her birth has been kept a secret by her mother from the feared celestial emperor, the same one who imprisoned her mother on the moon. And because of that, she can't reveal who she is, especially in the celestial kingdom, without um, without endangering her mother as well. And she also, you know, made a promise to her mother to to keep this a secret, and it is one that she intends to keep. So she, singing is not deceitful by nature. Uh, this is something which you know comes comes quite hard for her, especially in the beginning, because she does want to confide in her friends, but she is also afraid that if she does do that, she'll be jeopardizing, you know, her loved ones on the moon. Uh, and, you know, as the story progresses, this actually creates um, a strain, you know, a sort of tension between herself and those that she grows closer to in the celestial kingdom. I mean, namely, you know, Prince Li Wei and her friend. It, and it's important to note that it's not so much so much a lack of trust, but rather that she is constrained by her vow and constrained by her fear that if she, if she does explain who she is, and she's afraid for the consequences of those that she loves. And I think that, you know, the longer that things go on this way, the situation also becomes more, you know, complex, because the longer something is kept hidden or secret, I think there is also a greater reluctance to share it, because, you know, in, in some cases, you grow closer to this person that you're hiding it from, and then, you know, you also risk hurting them as well, but when they actually discover this, right? So, Yeah. <laughs> As if her relationships with certain people weren't difficult enough. <laughs> yes, they're definitely complex. <laughs> well, Xinyin and her mother are immortal, as we said, because of a forbidden elixir that her mother drank, and Xinyin's father was human. Uh, he was famous for a special trait. Uh, what talent has she inherited from him? So um, I was, I mean, I'm thinking, 
I'm going to speak a little bit about the legend also, just introduce a little uh, on Sunya Sadhya, right? Her father is Ho Yi, the mortal archer, and he is a great hero. He was known as the one who shot down nine of the ten sons, which were, you know, destroying the world and making it a misery. He is so famous, his name is sung in songs and, you know, told in tales and books are written about him. As, as the legend goes, Ho Yi was gifted the elixir of immortality. But he, he actually didn't drink it because he was in love with his wife, Chang'e, and he didn't want to leave her. But it was Chang'e who drank it instead flying to the moon. So, her father is mortal, and like him, Xinyin is an exceptional archer. And, you know, it's a talent that she inherited. Although, because she is immortal, she also has magic, which means that she can wield enchanted weapons more effectively, and, you know, her magic also enhances her talent as well, right? Um, but, you know, beyond these, like, you know, physical attributes, I believe that she has she also inherited, like, other traits from him as well, like um, strength of will, her resolve and courage. I mean, he he was a great warrior. It took a lot of, you know, courage for him to face the sunbirds knowing that, you know, they were divine creatures beloved by, by the gods, right? And I believe her mother was also very brave, and I believe that, you know, these were traits that she inherited from both her parents. I want to say right here that uh, we haven't gotten into Chang'e's reasons, nor will we, uh, because those are revealed in the book. But she is... Yes. She's brave, but she's a compliant person, and uh, she's certainly a compassionate person. So she had a very good reason for her action. She also loved Xinyin's father very much. So certainly uh, when she chose to drink the elixir, it was not uh, any reflection on her love for him or her family. Just in defense of her. No, no, of course. Now, saying, I'm saying that the mother is also brave, and that is mm-hmm. one that is also a trait that she inherited from both her parents. Because it's easy to say that you know she took the easy way out, but I don't think it was an easy decision at all because she did love her husband, and she would be leaving a whole family behind as well. And so, it did take bravery to really step into the unknown because you don't even know what the elixir is at that point in time. And beyond that, you know, once she got to the mortal realm, and had, and she had to face you know the celestial emperor and the empress, I think. All that took a lot of bravery as well to not break, to keep on going every day. You know what I mean, and to and to try and hide it all as well from her daughter in a sense because she didn't want to burden her daughter with with all this, right? So I think that took a lot of courage and bravery that manifested, you know, before she drank the elixir and and after as well. Uh, she's not a warrior material though, and. I'm not sure Shinyan is at the beginning either. She doesn't set out to be a warrior. She's never been encouraged to be one. But when she comes to court and starts to train with Prince Li Wei and discovers her archery skills, things change for her. But in general terms, what emotions set her on this path? Yeah, it's interesting. Well, I guess in the moon there's not much opportunity for her to train her warrior skills. <laughs> no, there aren't. <laughs> Well, I mean, for her, once she leaves home and once she leaves her mother, her greatest dream is to return to help free her mother, who is, you know, imprisoned on the moon through an enchantment. And I think it is it is this ambition which drives, you know, all her motivations. And while she does not set out to be a warrior from the start, she she embarks upon it as, I would say, as a means to an end, because a, a way for her to achieve what she wants, because at that point in time, there are honestly not very many available to her. She doesn't, you know, she doesn't come with, you know, 
powerful family. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have any influence at court. And I think her early experiences in the celestial kingdom have also, I mean, she learns from, she learns very quickly that, you know, only the strong and powerful thrive here, those with power. And that is something that she has not been able to tap because she is untrained in, in not just in her, you know, not just in her fighting abilities, but also in her magic, right? Which can be used both for battle and for other things as well. And so when she has this opportunity, she, she grabs it, she seizes it with both her hands because she sees this as one way that she could help her mother, previously a dream which seemed impossible. And um, so, sorry, oh, sorry, please go on. I do sense a certain competitive streak in her as well. She's driven. (laughs) But but I think the thing is, her ambition to do this is not really, you know, for glory or material Mm -hmm. wealth. I mean, not that they need money over there, being immortal and everything, but not for position or anything like that, but to gain enough influence to to re, to achieve what she wants to do, and for her, her driving ambition is to help her mother. So she is she is ambitious. She's driven by her own goals, which may not be you know what other people's goals are. So we talked a bit about the daughter of the moon goddess and its basis in Chinese mythology before. Uh, I was wondering if Xin Yin was a warrior in the original story, and if not, how her role differs in your retelling. Ah, so um, in the original legend, there is no mention of a child. So that, oh, like, that okay. is a, a key point of difference and a liberty that I took. <laughs> oh, and um, I imagined her existence. That might sound strange when we talk to myth in itself here. <laughs> oh, not at all. So, <laughs> I mean, the first line in Daughter of the Moon Goddess is, yeah, there are many legends about my mother. And, you know, I've spoken earlier a little bit about how Hoi shot the suns and was gifted elixir, yet mm-hmm. it was Chang'e who took it instead. And I think that a lot of the variations come in at that point, like the motivations for her taking it. So, I mean, there are so many. In one of them, it said that, you know, Chang'e took the elixir to prevent it from falling into the hands of Hoi's thieving apprentice, and so mm-hmm. she swallowed it. And, you know, in another variation, uh, Hoi was said to have become a tyrannical king. And Chang'e took the elixir because she didn't want his people to suffer under his reign forever. Mm. And, or it could just have been that she wanted to become a goddess. You know, I mean, these are, these are just some of these are the possibilities out there, right? And for myself, I always um, wondered if there was something more. I mean, they left me a little bit hollow because I always believed that Chang'e and Hoi were in love. Right. Mm-hmm. And right. it was and you know and Hoi actually I mean after Chang'e went to the moon there were all these tales of how he he was angry at first, but then he he missed her so much he would lay out offerings to her on the day that she flew away to the moon, like her favorite foods and wine and and this actually began the tradition of people worshipping the moon goddess during the mid autumn festival. Mm-hmm. So I definitely believed that, that they were in love then. And so I wondered if there was more what if Chang'e wasn't doing it just for herself. I'm sure there was a little bit of self-interest or, or as well. But what if she was also doing it to save someone who she loved as much as her husband? And, you know, from there, this idea took root. And then I just imagined what if they had a child and, and you know, someone who was filled with, you know, such fire and, and drive who would fight for her mother as her father did for the world. And, and it would, what, and, you know, it would be such a fascinating heritage in a way to be the daughter of the moon goddess and of the mortal who slew the suns, yet it would not be without its burdens as well because, you know, they have also infuriated the Jade Emperor and there are all these other, you know, 
restrictions or are these challenges that she faced, would face if she were to be the daughter of the moon goddess? There are a lot of challenges facing Xin Yin, <laughs> and a lot of them aren't her fault, but yet uh, she often castigates herself when something goes wrong. I noticed that, her internal dialogue. She blames herself. She seems unusually introspective for a warrior. And sometimes her internal dialogue even seems harsh. I wondered if that was something particular to her character or if it's more a part of Chinese culture versus the Western one. Hmm. It's uh, it's a little hard to say whether it's a part of my culture. I guess everyone is very different with different experiences. I will say in general, we tend to be more sparse on praise. <laughs> you tend to be more what? But sparse on praise. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think <laughs> you have to really earn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, oh, you got an A-. minus. Hmm. <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. But um, yes, yeah, so and and I think it, it's we're also sparse on praise to ourselves in a way. And I mean, for myself, I find partly because of that. I, I don't. Maybe every household is different, but you know, I find book promotion quite hard because of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's quite contrary to you know what I've grown up with and been told. So um, hard to say about the culture side. I I do think that you know this introspection and why she seems a little bit harsh on herself is is a natural extension of Asinia's character. Uh, she is, I mean, I believe she's empathic. You know, she's capable of growth, and she's intuitive and self-aware as well, right? Not just of herself, but of other people. And, you know, while she has a sense of pride, right, like she is also, you know, humble because, you know, she did come from knowing nothing and everything. And I think, and another part of it is that she's so passionate. She really cares so greatly about what she does. She takes it very hard and very personally when things don't go right and when she thinks she could have done better. So I think I think it's just something that came out of all these elements of her character. So I think I we'll this is something which <laughs> I think we'll skip a question and go right ahead since we're discussing her personality right now. Uh it appears she's not exceptionally beautiful. On a rare occasion, she's complimented about her looks. She scoffs. She's not flirtatious. So uh, what explains two of the most desirable men in the kingdom falling for her? We said that she's humble and she's empathic. Um, anything else? Because that's not humility is not usually something men look for. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there are probably many other desirable ones in the kingdom that just weren't covered there. Uh-huh. <laughs> no. Okay. So, I mean, uh, think a little bit about this. I, I Personally, I believe there are many forms of love, you know, ways for it to manifest. Mm-hmm. I think it's possible to admire someone for their physical appearance without wanting more from them, just as much as it's possible to fall in love with someone despite there being little or no physical attraction to start. And the relationships in Dora the Moon Goddess, they are not based so much on physical attraction. They tend to get to know each other first. They develop you know, a mutual admiration and respect before the emotions go deeper. Mm-hmm. And, and for example, when when Yin first meets uh, Li Wing, um, well, her love interests, they aren't exactly struck by her physical appearance here, right? Right. <laughs> but but it, does, it does not mean that she is not she's not attractive, rather it's not her most, you know, striking trait. Mm-hmm. And um, she is not perfect, right? She, she's 
definitely flawed, but I, I believe there is a lot to admire in her as well. And some things that come to the fore, the more you get to know her, she is she's intelligent, she's driven, and as I said, she's passionate, and she's also talented. Right? She's talented in fighting, she's talented in her music as well, and she has a keen sense of self-honor, which is not rigid. So, and, you know, as, as a fighter and a friend, she's loyal and she is, you know, full of resolve and dauntless. And I think these are all very admirable traits, right, for, for anyone. <laughs> At least that, that's what I believe. So we touched on the two most desirable men. Let's introduce them, Prince Li Wei and Captain Venger. They both want her affection and they're both attractive, brave, admired talented. There is one trait, though, that Winger has that Li Wei doesn't. What is it, and how does Jinyin react when she first notices it, even if it's just an internal reaction? Hmm. Now, this is an interesting one. Um, you know what's actually interesting as well is that when I was writing this, I didn't really envision a love triangle so clearly, but it mm-hmm. was more like a sequential sequential relationships with unresolved feelings. <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's a good way of describing it. <laughs> this was kind of, and I know that, you know, it's come out in a lot of comments as well. Um, it, they are very different, and they're admired for different things, and Sini definitely sees different things in them. Liwei is the celestial crown prince. He is powerful, but he's also compassionate and considerate and kind. And one of the striking things about him is that he's born to privilege, but, you know, he doesn't, like, rub it in anyone's face or mm-hmm. you know, use it like a weapon or anything, right? And I love that about him. Whereas Wenche is the renowned celestial captain. He is an accomplished, powerful, skilled warrior who has earned the respect of, his, of you know, his soldiers as well, right? And one element of him is that he is um, self-made, right? He, I mean, he driven to succeed in, in a way. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was said that he didn't really like come from, from anything so much, right? And perhaps that is something which resonates in Sinian, for that is what she is too. Someone, you know, fighting for what she wants, despite the odds against her. Someone who has, you know, earned her own way as well. Yeah, they're both outsiders. But I think uh, he can be a little ruthless, which she notices early on in their relationship, but she decides that, well, he's he's a military captain. Uh, she's a little put off by it, but then she accepts it because he is very loyal to her and the troops in her early experience. Yes, and I think it's partly because, like, uh, of, you know, being in the military and everything, he has to have that element to mm-hmm. actually, you know, lead the people to make the decisions that he's made as well. And I think, you know, I believe that, you know, her own father would have those traits as well if she had known him, right, to actually, you know, lead the army, to actually, you know, face the sunbirds, to, you know, kill, kill nine or ten of them, right? So That's right. I, I think that is something that she accepts as, you know, part, part of who he is. Well, let's move on to the dragons. There are dragons in this book, and they play a special role in the book as well as in Chinese mythology. In Western culture, dragons were traditionally viewed as greedy, fire-breathing beasts to be vanquished by brave knights. What's different in Chinese mythology? I love dragons. <laughs> um, and you and I don't know if, if you're aware, but you know what? 
I, the legend of Chang'e is the main inspiration behind our moon goddess, but I actually wove in another legend as well, that of the four dragons. I don't I, I'm know not it. sure of that. It's, Oh, okay. So, I mean, just to recap it briefly, um, there were once these four great dragons, and um, one day they were flying in the sky, and they heard a lot of crying from the world below, and they found there was this great, you know, famine. Mm-hmm. And the people were parched, and there was no water. And so um, they did plead to the Jade Emperor to, to help the mortals, but the Jade Emperor, it, it slipped his mind, <laughs> and the dragons couldn't stand the suffering mortals. So they actually brought water. They created rain, they brought water to the mortals, but they didn't do it with the permission of the Jade Emperor. So the Jade Emperor got very angry, <laughs> and um, he, he imprisoned the dragons, each under one mountain. So I think this part might sound a little familiar to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but... And, and what it was said then, I mean, according to the legend, right, it said that before each dragon was imprisoned, they used their magical powers to bring forth a great river that stretched across the realm, and so the people would never, you know, suffer again this way. And there's, that is said to be the creation of the four great rivers of China, the Yellow River, the Pearl River, the Black River, and the Long River, the Changjiang, right? So um, I love that legend, and I, I wove it into the story. And I also wanted to portray the dragons, you know, like a, a more, more aligned with Chinese, Chinese dragons who are also as powerful as their Western counterparts, but they tend to be more... Um, kind and benevolent in the stories. Uh, they tend to be creatures of water as opposed to fire, and they're mm-hmm. capable of controlling, like, rain and, you know, water level and, and I guess, flooding some places as well. <laughs> so, and physically also, there are also some elements which are quite different. And for me, the main one is that they're wingless, right? They, they have the, they're said to have, you know, the body of a serpent, horns of, the, horns of a deer, and the scales of a carp as well. So there are all these, like, different elements about them. And they have pearls. Yes, yes, they have pearls as well, which I said to be quite precious to them, though I I did reimagine some elements of that. (laughs) Well, if you want to know more about pearls, listeners, you're going to have to read the book. (laughs) (laughs) So my father painted, and I grew up noticing colors, and the colors and descriptions of clothing in your book are very vivid. For instance, and I'm going to read a bit, the attendants had drawn my brows into delicate arches, brushed my cheeks with rose powder, and colored my lips a light coral. My hair was pulled into smooth coils, adorned with jeweled flowers, from which strands of turquoise beads cascaded. The lilac silk of my dress was embroidered with colorful shells and seagrass, a crimson sash tied around my waist. An open coat of azure satin flowed to my feet, encased in slippers of gold brocade. I was wondering where you got all that from. Do you paint yourself, or do you design clothing in your spare time? (laughs) You know, hearing it like that, now I'm like, wow, there are a lot of colors there. (laughs) No, no, I, I, I... um, it's very perceptive, by the way. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not trained or anything in, mm-hmm. in art. Uh, I studied complete, something completely different, you know, something that was practical. <laughs> but I was always interested in writing and art myself. I cannot draw, though. <laughs> so, I mean, um, on the side, like before, before I did, before I started to write, I also worked with um, with gemstones, and um, oh. I also made accessories, you know, and, and I also did. Bags. <laughs> okay. Hairpins. I mean, these. 
<laughs> Sorry? Any hairpins? No, no hairpins. I love hairpins. Hairpins <laughs> do have a significance, you know, in, in Chinese ancient culture, right? So, mm-hmm. so um, yeah, so, I mean, I, I love colors. I worked a lot of semi-precious stones, and I love colors, and with the bags as well, you know, I, that was also something that I really enjoyed about thinking about different ways to put them together and um, it's just I guess I guess it's something which carried on into the writing Mm -hmm. (laughs) well what are you working on these days Uh, currently I am working on the sequel to Daughter of the Moon Goddess um, yet entitled it's just called book two right now (laughs) okay hopefully a review will be coming will be coming um, earlier in 2022 it will actually be released in fall of 2022, the same year as Daughter of the Moon Goddess. And um, there is also a secret project which I'm working on, which I can't say too much on right mm, now, which okay. is going at a very slow rate, though, with everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yes. Well, how do people keep up with news about you? Like once you get a firm release date, uh, where will you publish that? I'm generally mostly on Instagram. Um, you can find me at Suintan, C-E-L-Y-N-N-T-A-N. And sometimes I'm on Twitter as well, though, though less. And um, I also have a website, uh, suintan.com, which I really should update more often. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thanks so much for taking time out to talk with us today. No, thank you so much for having me. It was, I had such a great time. Thanks for listening to me today on the New Books Network in Fantasy. I've been talking to Malaysian author Su Lin Tan about her debut novel, Daughter of the Moon Goddess, which was inspired by Asian mythology. And I'll also be covering a second book in a series later on in 2022. Join me in February when I talk to David Slayton about his urban fantasy novel with a twist. Because much of Trailer Park Trickster isn't urban, it takes place in rural Oklahoma, where our besieged hero tries to deal with a host of dysfunctional relatives and a murderous druid. I'm your host, Gabrielle Matthew. You can follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more, at Gabrielle Author, G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E, and you know how to spell author. Until the next time.